Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I welcome you today to this magnificent episode of the I2 Sing America series, which highlights and celebrates African-American men who are making international plights in classical music. Today we are joined by baritone Sydney Outlaw, who is a magnificent young singer, lauded by the New York Times as a terrific singer and the Friday Morning Music Club as possessing great potential to see a world-class vocal career, Sydney Outlaw was named the 2010 Grand Prize winner of the Concurso Internacional de Canto Montessorat Caballé competition. This rising young baritone from Brevard, North Carolina, has already performed at some of the finest houses in America recently completing the prestigious Marola Opera Program, where he performed in several opera roles. Mr. Outlaw's orchestral and recital performances include debuts of renowned works at major concert halls, such as the Messiah at Carnegie Hall, Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 at Avery Fisher Hall, and most recently he sang in a performance of Mendelssohn's Elijah at Carnegie Hall as well. There's so many performances and accolades I could go on and on about about Sydney, but at this time I would like to welcome baritone Sydney Outlaw to the broadcast. Good afternoon, Sydney. Good afternoon, Master. How are you? I'm doing so well. Now we're talking to you live from Germany. How is the weather there? I'm looking out the window right now. It's absolutely beautiful. It's just It's amazing. It's such a blessing to be here. Oh, wow. Now, you just finished performances in Tel Aviv, and you're currently there in Germany, but let's go back to Tel Aviv. Tell me a little bit about um, the performances that you had there in Tel Aviv. Yes, I, I, I went there to perform with uh, Joan Dorneman. She's a coach at the Metropolitan, and she invited me to be a part of her summer program, the International Vocal Arts Institute and it's housed at the Yako Music Center in Tel Aviv. And it's not the first time I performed a Miss Summer Night's Dream there in 2009, but she invited me back to do a production of Don Giovanni as Le Borello. And I thought it would be a great chance for me to try something, a new role out and put a role on its feet. And I went over there and had a great time. And um, I'm engulfed in up to my neck in milk that rested. But you know what? We're, we're making it work. That is so wonderful. Now, as I mentioned in your bio, you were the 2010 winner of the Caballé competition. Could you tell me how did that come about? Could you maybe speak about the preparation for that competition and then finally winning? Absolutely. You know, uh, whenever as a young artist, you know, I run into the gap between being a young artist, quote unquote, and you know, a professional bonfire, you know, main stage artist. Uh, it can get really hectic with uh, finding money to do auditions and, and having suits and things to look good for auditions. And so a lot of the times we try to stop money all at one time to possibly pay rent or pay for voice lessons or coaching and things like that. And I was searching around on the Internet, which I do on Facebook and Twitter, and I saw this competition. I said, well, you know, I, I'm going to sign up for it, and I'll worry about how to get there later and where I'll stay later. And I did. I just applied to it. I filled everything out online. It was free. You know, there was no application fee or anything, you know. So I filled it out, and 
if it weren't for my uh, family at the San Francisco Opera, uh, the Maryland program, I might have not been able to go do it because they helped fund that my trip for me to get the plane ticket and the train ticket once I landed on the ground and to pay for the hotel and food while I was there, you know. So I'm I'm so grateful to, you know, my Maryland family for helping me out, you know, uh, Miss Jody Borland and Miss Lisa Danzig and everyone. Uh, and they made that possible for me to go over there. So I was not worried about money and where I was going to stay and food while I was there. I could just focus on my art. And so I did. That is so wonderful, and it's so wonderful that you acknowledge that support system because it's very important to have those people that are in your corner and to acknowledge those people who have helped you along the way. That's so great. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I consider them, you know, Sherry Greenwald, and they're all a part of Team Outlaw. You know, I have that, you know, my Team Outlaw, that's that my group of advisors, my cabinet, per se, of advisors that that helped me out and advised me so that I don't make the wrong decisions and end up there with me to, you know, when I'm celebrating great things, you know. So yeah, I'm very grateful to them. I like that. That's a very sharp concept, Team Outlaw. That's very, very neat. Now tell me something. You know you're very familiar to Washington, D.C. audiences. Uh, you were just here um, not too long ago. I first heard you in person finally in the uh, Brahms Requiem uh, with the Friday Morning Music Club, how did that performance come about? Oh, that was that was unique because uh, let me see, it was 2007. It was the same year that I graduated from Juilliard. I was sitting in the lobby at Juilliard, and I knew that I needed money for the summer because I was I, I always went to music academy to study with Marilyn Horn and Warren Jones, who were also a big you know part of Team Outlaw. You know, but it wasn't a program that paid. You know, you didn't pay to go to music academy, but it was always nice to have some money in your in your back pocket. And so I wanted some money for the summer, you know, like any student does. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to apply for this competition. And I applied for the Washington International Vocal Competition down in D.C. And uh, my good friend, Tamara Sanakisa, uh, agreed to play the piano for me because she was at the University of Maryland during that time. So that that worked out, and I went down and I sang the audition, the the rounds, you know, there were three rounds, and I came in third place. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was the end of it. I knew that that was great. I, I was so excited. I had money for the summer, and I moved on with life. And a couple months before the concert in D.C. in January of this year, I got an email from them, and they said, you know, if you remember one of the perks, for winning, being one of the winners of the competition, is that you could come back and do perform. You get to come back and do performances with the Friday Morning Music Club. Now, you know, I was young then. I obviously didn't read the fine print. Luckily, it was a good thing that I missed out on. You know, that I didn't read the fine print, but I did. And so I got to go back to D.C. and perform with this wonderful group of people, and they had a wonderful choir down there, and. We just had a wonderful time. That was a great time to be able to go down there and make music. Uh, during the middle of the winter when New York City was just so just engulfed in snow and the sun wasn't shining, it was dreary, you know, and it was great to be able to get away and go perform and do something so great. That's fascinating. You know that Webster Alexander Rogers, he, he's such a wonderful uh, conductor, and I'm glad that you had that opportunity yeah. 
to work with him. Now, let's go back and harken back to Germany. As I mentioned, you're there in Germany. How did your engagement uh, in the production of Les Nocturnes de Figaro by Mozart come come about? Well, I'm, at, I'm, I'm actually I'm here in Weimar, and I'm working with Damon Nestor Plumet. Um, he has a program literally in the center of Weimar called the Lyric Opera Studio of Weimar. And, you know, it's another chance for me to try out a, a role, you know, and put it on the seat in a, a not such a, uh, a pressurized situation where I have the whole world watching me. I can play around with it and, and, and see, you know, what happens and see how it feels so that the next time I perform this role, wherever it may be, you know, it, could be, it, it may be at the Met. I don't know. I claim it. Maybe it is. You know, maybe it'll be at Southern Garden or Greensboro Opera. But it won't be the first time that I perform the role. It won't be brand new. And I can I can take it to another level. I can perform another, a more mature version of the role, you know. And so I took advantage of the opportunity, you know. He offered me a chance to come here and perform and, and work on German, the German language and be engulfed in the culture here, and it's just a great chance to network, to think for other agents here in Germany, and the houses will be coming here to hear us, you know, and I'm very grateful to Damon and, and the Lyric Opera Studio because, you know, they gave me a chance, you know, and, and they're very nurturing here, and they believe. They believe in the singers, and they believe in the art form and preserving this most high, grand art form, and it's just, it's just, I'm very grateful and blessed to be here right now, especially at this point in time in my life when learning roles are so important and learning them correctly the first time so I don't have to go back and fix mistakes later on in life. Mm. And, you know, I think it's quite fascinating. When you when you mentioned that you're in Weimar, the first thing or first person I think about is Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes, and, and uh, well, Leipzig is very near here. And and also the poet Goethe is from here. Oh wow, that is so absolutely, absolutely. I walked by his house yesterday evening on the way uh, home from the grocery store. Oh my goodness, that's 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 awesome to be immersed in that culture. I want to go back to talking about the Caballé. Uh, competition because I know that you had to do a lot of coaching and all of those musical things, but I know that there are probably some young aspiring singers who are out here who may be listening. What are some of the pen and pencil type things that you had to really do to prepare, you know, to make preparations for this competition? Well, you know, I, I, was, it was, I, love, I was very blessed enough to be at Marilla all summer from June 18th until I think I had a week off from Marilla before I needed to be in uh, uh, Spain, Madrid. So, you know, I used that time at Marilla not only to work on my role there and, and working with Martin Katz and, and Mark Marash and Mr. John Parr and Tamara Sanakita, all these wonderful coaches out there, but I also used that time to work on other areas and things that I might want to compete with. So I incorporated those things into my schedule there while I was there in that program so that I could just rest and use that time that week that I had off to rest and rest my voice from the crazy summer that I had, you know, and all the wear and tear on the voice so that I'd be in great voice when I got to Spain. I wouldn't be vocally tired and mentally tired. And um, a lot of the times that's what you have to do, you know. I mean, it's the same thing when I was in Tel Aviv. 
for the past month, I was putting Don Giovanni on his feet and coaching Leno Figaro with Joan and Hemdi and, and Mr. Paul Nedler, you know, before, so that I could be prepared for it when I got to Germany. So it's basically multitasking and thinking ahead so that whenever it's time to, to perform, you can just let go and perform and do what, what you do. That's what my mom always says. She said, you do what you do best. And whenever you get everything else out of the way, you are able to perform your best. So I do all the tedious work. I try to, at least, do all the tedious work well before time to actually go on the stage so that I'm not thinking about it. I'm thinking about the character. In fact, I'm not even Sydney. I'm whatever character that I am portraying that at that moment, you know. So I, I was very lucky, but... Um, also, working with Warren Jones, you know, Warren Jones is like my right-hand man. He's like my right-hand man. I, I don't perform anywhere usually without taking something and letting him hear it before I step out onto the stage. And it, it can be hard to catch up with Warren, but <laughs> he always makes time for me. I, I sit here and I get chill about thinking about how... That man has helped me so much. He is like my right-hand man when it comes to, you know, the musical aspect and coaching for me as, you know, within Team Outlaw, you know, so absolutely. But, you know, you made two perfect points. The one point is that basically when uh, a person comes to an, to an opera or a concert, they don't come to see Patrick or they don't come to see Sydney. They come to see that character on the stage, so I'm glad you brought that out. And the next thing, and the next thing you said was how you took and you managed your time. So time management is crucial. Oh, absolutely. My day is planned fully from the time I put my feet out of the bed on the floor until the time I go back to bed. The first thing my day starts with is unless I'm sick, I work out, and I work out six days a week, twice a day for at least an hour and a half. Mm. And I separate that into my schedule wherever I am. In Clavi, I worked out this morning here in, in Weimar. You know, it's a part of my day. And then the rest of my day, you know, now I have my schedule memorized. You know, this is what I'm going to do during this hour. And I'm flexible, you know, but, like, most of the time, if you talk to my friend Megan and my other friends at home, Freddie and everyone, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, this is on a schedule. And it's, you know, that's the schedule. And so it's time management, and it really does help, especially whenever you're doing a production and you have an hour to eat lunch and maybe go coach something else, another gig that you have. Mm, that's that's very key. That's very key. Now I want to also move on. So, Sydney, how were you, how were you initially introduced to classical music and opera? Hmm. Well, I was a freshman player up until my first year at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I started playing brass instruments in sixth grade, so that's about 1993. And that was my first, um, my first, you know, experience with classical music was, you know, being in Dr. Palmer's band class back in Brevard, North Carolina, at Brevard Middle School. And when I got to high school, I met Mary Beth Shoemate who was my high school chorus teacher. I sit here and I'm just grinning from ear to ear thinking about those two people. <laughs> they are, they're such, even now, big influences in my life. Um, 
you know, I mean, I grew up singing in church, you know, my, my mother's side of the family, they're all musicians and singers, you know, and, and Ms. Shoemate, and Dr. Palmer knew that, because I come from a very small town, and we all know each other, everybody knows everyone, so, um, you know, they helped me, you know, nurture those skills that I had from singing in church choir and singing with my, my cousins and, and everyone in church, and, and Whenever I was in 11th grade, Ms. Shoemate took a group of us to Bob Jones University in South Carolina to see Aida. And I remember that production. I can see it in my head right now. Man, they had real animals on the stage. I guess they got them from the zoo. I don't know where they got real animals. <laughs> in Eagleville, South Carolina. But they had them, honey. And they were on that stage, and I was like, wow. I, was, I, I, I got the bus right there. I was like, this is what I want to do. And, and, and I, I knew I wanted to do something in music. I just wasn't sure exactly, you know, what it was. I knew it could be teaching, and I started being in the musicals by then. But after I saw that production of Aida, I knew that that was the direction that I wanted to go in. That is awesome. Now, I understand that you heard a particular CD in school, too, that kind of influenced you also, of a singer that we have in common. Absolutely. Well, the straw that broke the camel's back after seeing Aida was, you know, I was curious. And I had this thing growing up where I was obsessed with buying CDs because, you know, in the early 90s, that was a new thing. So I had all these CDs, and, and I remember I broke my piggy bank, and my mom's going to call me after she hears this because she never knew this. But I broke my piggy bank that I had since a baby, and it had $18 worth of pennies in it. And I remember I went up to Austin Art Shop, which was a music, uh, music store in the bar, and I bought Kathleen Battle's Grace CD, Patrick. And, and cause, you know, I was like, oh, well, it has the Ave Maria on here, the Schubert one. And I knew that one, you know, and so I bought it. And, and I was just hooked. I was just hooked after that, you know, and, and you know, it, it I still have that CD. It's on my iTunes now, and the actual CD is at home in Brevard, but I still have that same CD on my iTunes, and, and I listen to that. And, um, you know, I, I remember that next summer, because we had the Brevard Music Center up there, and um, I was in the chorus for AIDA at Brevard Music Center, and that was the first time I experienced, the second time I experienced opera live, but the first time I've seen an African-American in the lead, and it was Marquita's sister, and she just just wowed me. I have a saying, she just slayed me. <laughs> Working with her, you know, and it was just amazing, and she, every time I spoke with her and asked her advice and talked to her about things, she always made me feel like it was the most important question in the world, you know, and, and I was, those, those were the things that just really pushed me even more to, to want to be a classical musician. And um, my little teacher then, Julie, Dr. Julie Fortney, uh, I was looking for different colleges to go to for my undergrad, and she told me, she said, no, you will go to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. My good friend, LaVon Tobin Scott, is there, and she is going to teach you how to sing. And doggone it, she did. Oh, she did. The Von stock in three forty-seven at Greensboro. <laughs> and she's still in that same room, man. And that woman taught me how to sing, and I used I used the things that she taught me how to sing every single day of my life. I get up and and I use the things that I learned 
been very blessed to have some wonderful teachers with her and, and Stephen Smith at Juilliard and Marilyn Horn and my current voice teacher, Manny Perez. It's just been, I've been so blessed and lucky to have the, the guidance that I have, including the guidance and the support of my family who are typing. And, you know, to have that support, wow, I mean, I really can express mm. you know, how grateful I am to those people that got Steve and Manny and Lauren. So, absolutely, absolutely. It's been a, Well, speaking of singing, I want to play an excerpt of you singing. This is Sydney Outlaw, baritone Sydney Outlaw, singing Piro's Tonsleet from Detoshtot by Eric Korngold. I hope that you all enjoy this.
That was absolutely wonderful. That was absolutely wonderful. So you just heard baritone Sydney Outlaw sing that wonderful uh, piece from by Eric Corngo. Now tell me something. You spoke about several other uh, pianists and so forth. Tell me about uh, Carol Wong, who is another one of your collaborators. Yes, Carol. You know, I've been working with Cal now for about two or three years, and we met. We were both at Juilliard uh, and studied there, and, and we found a chance for us to start working together through the Maryland Horn Foundation, which I'm just so grateful for. And and we, we did it off, and the relationship between the singer and pianist, you know, I mean, I've always been around wonderful pianists and wonderful singers, and I, I look at the way that... Miss Horn and her relationship with Martin Katz through the years as a recitalist, they were partners. And, it, you know, I learned that it was very important to be able to find uh, the right partner to work with on stage so that you all can collaborate and, and perform together as a unit. And I think that Carol and I do that really, really well. And I'm, I'm so grateful to, to Carol for sharing the stage with me and agreeing to share the stage with me. And, you know, we're getting ready to hit the road this fall, starting in uh, St. Louis at Washington University doing a recital. And I always look forward to working with Carol because we make such great music on stage and, and we have a great time. And, and, you know, it's a blessing being able to work with her. She, she can play. <laughs> <laughs> and she can play. And that's important. Now, you mentioned Marilyn Horn, who is one of my absolute favorites mezzo sopranos. How were you introduced to her, and what made you go to her program? I remember. <laughs> I remember the night that I auditioned for Music Academy of the West, and Miss Horn actually wasn't in the audition. It was Warren Jones, Fred Kobama, uh, one of the patrons, uh, Bob Wyman, who was recording, and I do believe John Churchwell. And we were in room three hundred five at Juilliard. And I went in, and I was a little nervous because that week prior, I had been toying around with thinking about auditioning with Ijebin de la Calda on the third act of Leno City Hugo. And Michael Baser coached it, and we had a great coaching that week, and he was like, you should audition. I'm playing the audition. I won't, I won't let you fall. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. Don't be scared of it. And so I went in, and I sang Ape Sempre from uh, the first act of Ivoritani, and then Warren asked, he said, Sidney, can I hear just the rest? of our Jermaine de la Calva. I said, yes, great, because it was the high note at the end. My top hadn't filled in, you know, so I was a little nervous with the big F sharp at the end. And so I sang the record, and I got to the end, and that man looked at me and told me to keep going. And I said, Jesus, take the wheel, just take the wheel, because I don't know what's getting ready to happen. And lo and behold, I went through the aria and sang the crap out of it, and next thing you know, here comes Tiffany Shoemaker calling me, asking me to be come to uh, Music Academy for my first year, you know. And, you know, it, it's just stepping out on faith and taking a chance, you know. And that, that was one of the first lessons that I learned, you know. And 
in this industry, yeah, where you have to just get out there and try it and, and take that chance. And so uh, and that was my first experience meeting Warren, too, you know, uh, and, and he just made the motion, keep going, keep going. And so we kept going, and, and here I am sitting in Primark getting ready to sing the whole opera. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, you know, congratulations to you. You know I'm absolutely proud of you and so many other singers out here who are just making their mark. This particular series, uh, the I Choose Sing America series, is very special to me because this series is one that highlights uh, not just musicians or anybody, but it highlights African-American uh, male opera singers who are making their, their place in the international firmament of opera, and you are certainly doing that. So I offer you hearty congratulations. Well, thank you so much. That means so much coming to me, Patrick. Thank you so much and to you. And that moves me to my next point. This next point or discussion I want to ask, being a young African-American male, you're certainly very talented, well-versed in repertoire, and your voice is just glorious. How has racial tensions or situations been for you in terms of pursuing this career? Well, you know, I mean, the same as anyone else in any other career, you know. I mean, I, I wasn't raised to look at color. I had all kinds of friends growing up. Just call my mom and ask. They <laughs> to school. You know, I had all kinds of friends running through the house playing various instruments, eating up all the food in the refrigerator. Sometimes my father and my mother's food, because they worked 12-hour shifts, and so sometimes we'd end up eating their lunches while they're at work. And, and so, I mean, I never really experienced racism growing up. You know, I kind of grew up like a Cosby kid, and, and, and I'm so grateful to my parents for instilling in that, that I should look at people's character and not their skin tone, you know, but... Pertaining to this business, sure, I, I would, I would, I would have to say that yeah, there are some, there are some racial issues, but that's not my business. You know, someone else's uh, opinion of me in that aspect is none of my business. I've got too many other things to worry about than to to devote my time and my energy to to something that I have no control over. You know, um, I was always heavy growing up. And I've always been self-conscious about my weight. And I'm at a point now where I, I am about half the size of the person I was when I started the master's program at Juilliard. And you look great. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, I, I, I no longer worry about, I'm, never, I'm no longer self-conscious about my weight. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with who I am and how I look and, and my skin color. You know, I was always validated as a child growing up. And even now about how beautiful I am and how handsome I am and how I look good and how you look just like your dad, that's what they say when I go home. You look just like your father, you know. And so, I mean, I I, I just, yeah, it's out there. And, and you deal with it accordingly and very gracefully and very eloquently, and you shower them with, with elegance and kindness, and, and you keep moving. And, and you, like that team price says, you, your art speaks for you. Mm. Because my skin, my skin tone, I can't change that. You know, I, I can't change the color of my skin. You know, but but I can change how good a musician I am. I can I can work on you know musicianship skills. I can be a good colleague. I can continue to learn Italian, even though I get the articles mixed up all the time. I'm sorry about that, Hindi. Um, <laughs> I, I can, you know, I mean, I can continue to work on my languages. I can continue to 
to try to strive to be the best artist that I can be and try to create something that that's timeless and that, you know, people will listen to in a time of grieving or in a time of happiness, you know, that, that my my work as an artist would be there, like Janelle Monet says, their choice of drug, mm. you know, art would be their choice of drug. Not because I'm black, but because I have something to say, you know. So, yeah, racial issues are out there, and I kind of just, like, laugh at them, like Kathy Griffin, you know, I just laugh at them, and, and, and I keep it moving because God gave me this instrument, and he's the only one that can take it away, you know, and and I can still sing. You can't, you can't shut me up. I still keep singing. <laughs> <laughs> let, the, let the church say amen. <laughs> <laughs> you can't shut me up. So I mean, I, I I keep kicking, you know, and that's what you have to do. You you get knocked down and you get back up and you push hard. Not the foot, but the stamina, the the mind, the, you know, the drive. You push hard, you know, and you keep moving. You keep going, moving forward like music. You move forward. That's it. Well said, Sydney. Well said. Now. Who are some of the male voices that you kind of look to that serve as your your benchmarks in opera when you're learning new music or repertoire in general? Well, you know, when I'm learning new repertoire, a lot of the times what I'll do is I'll I'll go over to Carol's house and knock on her door and we'll play around with it for a couple of days and sometimes weeks before I listen to a recording because I'm you know I I want to sound like me. You know, I want to be me as an artist. I, I want to make my mark as an artist and put my spin on things. And there, there are recordings and people that I love and reference and, and style, people that I go to for style references and things like that. But ultimately, I want it to be Sydney's recipe that you hear on the stage where may it be in Dynamar, may it be Carnegie or Merkin Hall or at church, at the Riverside Church in New York City where I go. But it, it, it has to be me, and it has to be who I am as an artist and where I am at that particular moment in my life. But when I'm referencing singers, I love to listen to Robert McFerrin Sr. I love listening to Simon Estes. I love Ben Holt. I love Donnie Ray Albert, William Warfield, George Shirley, Leonard Warren, Ethereum Bastanini, Mr. Joe Mills, George London. I keep going. It's my iTunes. <laughs> my husband is a fool of these people, you know, and, and Mr. Uh, Renato Mr. Sam Raimi, you know. Uh, you know, Mr. Sam Raimi, I, I reference him all the time because, I mean, look at all the repertoire that he sings, the, the handle and things like that, you know, and I sing a lot of handle, and, and you know, of course I'm going to go to Mr. Raimi. Uh, he, he teaches you how to dig deep, <laughs> you know, and... and, and so uh, those are just a few. Those are just a handful of the guys that I listen to and I I look up to, you know. Um, and and I I like to look up to them and I like to put my spin on it. As where I am right now at this moment in my life, and and I just whatever happens happens, you know. And I let it go and I keep moving on with it. Sydney, I have a call on the line from a four hundred four area code. Would you be willing to talk to a caller? Sure, why not? Okay, let's see. Hello, caller, you're on the air. Hello, caller, you're on the air. 
Sydney, you there? Yes, I'm here. They they must have hung up, and I brought them on. Well, maybe they'll call back. Maybe they'll call back. <laughs> but it's so funny. You spoke of two opera singers that just really, uh, really spoke to me. I just heard Donnie Ray Albert for the very first time. Uh, yeah, uh, last week he sang a part of the National Association of Negro Musicians Gala that Mark, Marquita Lister put together, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, it was so many singers who sang, Marietta Simpson, Mark Rucker, um, Robert Anthony Mack, so many people, uh, Louise Toppin, the list goes on and on and on. But Donnie Ray Albert sang, and he just was so magnificent, as were the other singers. And then, of course, Samuel Ramey, I had the opportunity to interview him last year. So those are two special, definitely special singers to me. Now, let's go back to talking about uh, Juilliard. How did you choose Juilliard uh, as your graduate school choice? Well, I I didn't get it, Curtis, and I was I was just taken back by that because I, I couldn't understand why in the world I could make the finals for something and not get in. You know, at that point in time, I didn't know that, you know, that was the shoe-in to get in because you, up until that point, you know, it was like, oh, okay, well, if you make the finals, you usually get in. Well, I, I was auditioning and I was coaching with a lady by the name of Arlene Trust and and I, I told her, you know, hey, I got into Juilliard. I went up to an audition and I got in. I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon. My audition was at 6 and they were running late. And I sang, I opened with The Negro Speaks of Rivers by Howard Swanson, the Howard Swanson arrangement. And then they called Odu Michael de Abedcher. And this was in the Peter J. Sharp Theater. Well, it's now Peter J. Sharp Theater. It was just the Juilliard Theater back during my tenure there. And, um, I, I I wasn't sure if I was going to get a call back, but I was sitting in the lobby, nervous wreck, hands sweating, and I went up and they called me back. My name was on the list. And so I thought I had to sing again. No. The callback is when you go upstairs and do interviews and coach and, and take theory tests and things like that. So I went and did that, and um, I met one of the most influential people in my Juilliard career, Mary Anthony Cox. And and I didn't know that she was going to be so influential because I was just absolutely terrified of her at that moment. But later on, when I went into the program, she became one of my greatest allies there and, and still is. You know, I talk to Ms. Cox all the time, and and uh, she really, really helped me hone in on my all skills and, you know, theory, music theory and things like that. And um, I, what made me decide to go to Juilliard was the fact that Eileen Schrutt, helped me realize that for the teacher that I wanted to work with, and she told me, she said, you've got to work with Stephen Smith at Juilliard. He, he's going to take you to that next level that, that Ms. Scott has got you on right now. He's going to take you to the next level. He's the person to do it. And she was the only person that I was coaching with at that time. And so, obviously, I was young, and I took her advice. You know, I, I talked to my parents about it, and, and sure, I was going to go to Juilliard. Who wasn't going to go to Juilliard? And top it off, I got a great teacher that I'm getting ready to go into a studio. And lo and behold, I went up there, and that man took me through a soft change from singing bass baritone to baritone. And to this day, people say that, you know, that was one of the most successful soft changes that they'd ever witnessed. You know, he is a phenomenal teacher, and he had a great time. We laughed. We cried. I had about 10,000 questions. And he answered them to the best of his ability, and we just had a great 
time while we were at Juilliard. And that's what music is about, you know. Have a good time. Enjoy it, you know. It's, it's not it's not rocket science. Think it's like my dad always told me, think before you speak, 
you know, think about it. Think about what you're doing before you do it, you know, and, and have a healthy mind. Try to have a life. You know, I try to have a life outside of the music as well. I try. I try. Sometimes it's not successful. But I try to have a life, you know. I love to go out and fight the I love to hang out Carol. I hang out with Carol all the time in the city, you know, and we have misadventures where we get lost and things like that.
Coronation Mass. So it's going to be a pleasure to talk to him on Wednesday. So, again, mark your calendars, Monday, August 8th at 12 noon, an interview with Aaron Dworkin, the president of the Sphinx Organization. And then on Wednesday at noon also we're going to talk to internationally acclaimed tenor Kenneth Tarver, the royal tenor, as I would like to think of him. Again, this is Patrick McCoy, the African-American voice and classical music. I thank you for tuning in today. You may follow me on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy. You may like the Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice and classical music Facebook page on Facebook. And you may also friend me on Facebook. I'm Patrick D. McCoy on Facebook. I have some breaking news for you to inform you of. Just last week, well, actually, earlier this week, I was named to the board of Opera North, Inc. of Philadelphia, so I'm excited about that. The executive director is the internationally acclaimed composer, Leslie Burrs, and it's such a pleasure to serve on that board, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. And also, I would like to let you know that I'm going to be bringing the Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice and classical music to colleges and universities across the country. So if you're interested in having me come to speak at your school or institution, please send me an email at theafricanamericanvoice at gmail.com. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. I'm so thankful for your support. I hope you'll follow me and keep sending me emails. Oh, and don't forget, please like the show, friend the show, and follow the show, and we're going to keep on bringing the highest level of classical music to you and the joys of music to all communities. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I wish you all a wonderful weekend.